Hello and welcome to World History Encyclopedia's podcast, where we put your questions to archaeologists, historians and curators, our experts on history. I'm Fiona Richards, and I'm delighted to be here today talking to Dr. Louise Pryke. After growing up on a sheep farm in rural central western New South Wales, Louise completed her secondary education by correspondence. She graduated from the University of Sydney with a PhD in ancient history and has taught courses in ancient languages and literature at Macquarie University and the University of Sydney. She's the author of four books. Welcome, Louise. Oh, thanks, Fiona. It's lovely to be here. Now, I must just go back to your secondary education by correspondence, because many listeners might not actually know that that's something that can happen in a country like Australia. Yes. Well, it's quite interesting, really, because it, um, students in Australia can do school by correspondence for all kinds of different reasons. And particularly because of Australia being such a big place uh, and parts of it are quite remote, uh, there's something wonderful called the School of the Air, which isn't how I did things uh, I wasn't. I was on a sheep farm, but I wasn't quite that remote. But the school of the air tends to look after people that are so remote, and sort of, you know, does a lot of uh, bringing in. Uh, it used to do a lot of things over the radio, where the students would learn things by listening to the radio. But now, you know, the internet's come in and that kind of thing. But it just goes to show there's just so many ways to get an education, many different roads up the mountain. And did you always want to be a historian? Well, actually, I wanted to be an astronaut. Um, Excellent. <laughs> Uh, but I personally, maths is never really on my side. Um, but also I feel like being an astronaut and being a historian are kind of the same thing in a way, because it's all about thinking of the big picture. Like you're thinking about the world. We are here for such a brief moment. Uh, and I just love that sense of perspective that you get from astronomy or from history, where you start looking around and getting this sense of what an amazing world we're in, or universe even. That's fantastic. As you know, at WHE, we, we love history. That's what we're all about. I love the way you've just described that. I understand that for your research, it was all about ancient literature in the ancient Near East. So where did that come from as well? Oh, I think that that came from, I just, I just love stories of any kind. And I love how much stories tell us about being human. And I think that if you study, I mean, a lot of my research, I'm quite fortunate to be looking at some of the world's oldest stories that have been written down, uh, like the Epic of Gilgamesh. And that makes me really interested in how people have been using storytelling, the storytelling kind of uh, device to try and understand the world and our place in it uh, for seemingly as long as we've had civilization. And I would, I would warrant longer than that as well. Fantastic. So in your introduction, I mentioned that you'd written four books. Now, there's one on Gilgamesh and Ishtar, who are two Mesopotamian characters, shall we say. Uh, but the other two are on animals. There's the scorpion and also the turtle. So can you tell us why we have two animal books in there with the two Mesopotamian characters? Uh, well, it's a great question and one that I feel I often receive from colleagues. <laughs> <laughs> as well. Um, but for me, I feel like it's all history. There's a world of history out there and you don't want to just, well, it's it's fascinating to learn about human history, but there's so many other animals on the planet that have also had amazing histories. And the turtle book and the scorpion book, they um, both look at the cultural history of that animal. And so what the animal has meant throughout human history, which I just think is a really fun and informative lens uh, through which to look at such a, at a really wide spectrum of human existence. 
So yeah, they're pretty fun and you learn some pretty cool things about animals while you're doing it. So also they're super old as well. So I feel like that's, if I have anything that unites it all together and it's arguable that I do, then I would say, look, you know, scorpions were older than dinosaurs. Turtles sort of maybe turned up around the same time that dinosaurs did. So I just really like ancient things, I think. That's a fantastic fact. I don't think I I knew that uh, scorpions were older than dinosaurs. They are amazing and they have stayed roughly the same shape because, you know, when scorpions started out, they kind of got it right the first time. So they are amazing sort of prehistoric little guys. Yeah. And turtles. Well, we'll come back to turtles later because we can't not talk about turtles. And I have to say thank you very much for talking to us today about Mesopotamian things because of Gilgamesh and Ishtar. So we've had quite a few questions from our WHE readers, um, so I shall jump right in with them. And some of them are a bit long, but we'll we'll get through <laughs> we'll get through them. So so let's start off with a question from Moriam, who would like to know. Firstly, in the early Babylonian Empire by Hammurabi, and secondly, in the Neo-Babylonian Empire by Nebuchadnezzar II, the city god Marduk gained a lot of importance, especially in Babylon and Mesopotamia. Thus, can we say, in both Hammurabi's and Nebuchadnezzar's reign, but especially in the latter's reign, that Marduk was a catalyst to form a united Babylonian culture and society? Wow, that is a really informed and thoughtful question. I'm very impressed by your your readers. And the short answer is yes, you probably could. (laughs) um, You could look at Marduk as playing that catalyst role. But of course, with history, it's always more complex than um, a simple yes or no. And so Marduk thought those less informed was like the primary uh, deity of Babylon. So he was the city god. Uh, And he kind of starts out as being the city god in Babylon. And then his role really, I mean, the question kind of went from like old Babylonian to neo-Babylonian, which is, you know, about hundreds and hundreds of years. And Marduk changes throughout that time and becomes more preeminent and goes from being sort of the city god of Babylon to becoming the ruler of the whole Uh, Mesopotamian pantheon and indeed the whole Mesopotamian universe. So he gets right up to the top of the tree. And the thing that unites uh, the questioners to uh, historical figures, uh, which was Hammurabi, the famous uh, lawgiver, and Nebuchadnezzar II, is that they were both really well known for um, their abilities to, well, they're both warrior kings, and they both brought Babylon, sort of they elevated the status of Babylon. And as they did that, uh, Marduk's status was also elevated. And so, so, yes, I think this catalyst idea uh, is is a nice fit. Fantastic, thank you. Okay, now we have a question now from Durvanch, who is uh, a student in economics and technology in Turkey, and he would like to know, do we actually know that the superpowers that we call myths are really myths, or just because of lack of proofs and evidence we call them myths? I love this question. Um, so, <laughs> uh, that's, that's really interesting, and I... I would love to know the answer to that too. I certainly think that um, the jury is still out. But what I can say is that if we're talking about Mesopotamia, then what we're looking at usually uh, in Mesopotamian myths are texts or literature that blends together the historical and then the kind of mythical. So you'll have things that are rooted in sort of historical events or even historical persons potentially. Um, But then at the same time, they'll be doing sort of magical things like flying up to heaven on the back of an eagle, um, which we think is probably the more mythical side of things. 
But at the same time, I mean, some of the things that are attributed to myth, we've found can actually seem to have quite uh, quite a good basis in what might be historical fact. And so it really is a question, as um, as your questioner has noted, of not having enough evidence to really know either way. I will say in Mesopotamia as well, we start to see the first, um, I like the reference to superpowers because we get to see some of the people with the first, uh, in narratives, we start to see people with some of the first superpowers who are sort of comparable to like sort of Marvel Avengers. We have Gilgamesh with his super strength. And then we have Lugal Banda, who actually is bestowed uh, with super speed uh, and can kind of, you know, he's like the flash of ancient Mesopotamia. So, yeah, so it's definitely this idea of being able to, tran to transcend uh, the mortal um, limitations certainly has a very long history in human thought. Fantastic. Thank you. Okay, we have one from Karen now. And I think I've read that you're very interested in the flood myths as well. So she has a question which says, regarding world flood myths stroke narratives, what are your favorite theories? How relevant is Pangea given that so many cultures have their own surprisingly similar flood stories? She writes, I have read very briefly about the thought that human genetics somehow have encoded memories. And she wonders if the flood narrative might in some way be such a thing. What is your opinion, please, Louise? Well, uh, this is kind of a huge question. And again, it's one of those things that we probably don't have a definitive answer for yet. But uh, Karen's definitely right in that uh, we do see a lot of ancient flood narratives in a lot of different cultures. Um, and, you know, so sort of Chinese culture, you know, Greek myth. Uh, and then famously, you've got the uh, Gilgamesh flood narrative, uh, which seems to be somehow related to the biblical flood narrative of the book of Genesis. There's a lot of overlap, but there's also a lot of difference between all these different uh, flood narratives. And so I think with the reference to uh, sort of the like sort of terraforming and how the continents kind of came together, look, I'm not really sure uh, how how much evidence we have for um, for what stage in human history certain things might have happened in terms of a flood. But I will say they did find, I think recently, uh, I think it was something like 7,000 years ago uh, that there seems to have been evidence for sort of uh, silt that might have come from uh, a giant flood that was found in areas that weren't previously considered to have been uh, anywhere anywhere near a large body of water. And so I think it's something that people keep finding. But what I will say about this that I think is really interesting is that often what we find in literature is echoes of human experiences, but they've been part of an oral tradition or uh, um, or part of stories that we don't know that have disappeared that get passed down for such a long time. And then when we receive them, we don't realise there's a historical kernel to them. So this, for example, with um, in Gilgamesh, book five, he and Engidu, his like wild man friend, they get to the forest of cedars and they think the forest of cedars are so beautiful and they admire them and then they chop them down. And they get into a lot of trouble because they're like a, it's a sacred forest, uh, so deforestation didn't didn't wasn't a good look back then either. And uh, what was really interesting about this was when I was talking about this uh, in um, uh, publications, uh, I was in touch with um, a very learned scientific person who said to me, "Did you know that actually there is evidence of?" Uh, forest clearing in that area from about sort of 9,000 BCE all the way up to around the time that the Gilgamesh stories would have started to have been written down. So it's almost like the Gilgamesh stories are giving an etiology or like an explanation of how those forests ended up 
being chopped down. Um, so yeah, so and that's something that I didn't know about the stories. I didn't know there could be that historical background. And so I think we've got a lot left to discover. Fantastic. And perhaps now we should just have a quick chat about Gilgamesh because well, number one question, was he a mythical figure or was he a real person? Uh, nobody's quite sure. And so <laughs> he, uh, he does appear on the Sumerian king list, uh, which does have historical kings on it sort of towards the end. But towards the beginning of it, it's got historical kings, well, presumably historical kings that lived for hundreds of years and are thought to have perhaps been legendary figures or um, sages or similar. And so where he fits into that, um, it's hard to tell, but it does seem that if he was a historical figure, he probably would have reigned around the time of sort of, I think it's like 2700 BCE, and then the stories would have evolved from there. Okay. And so tell us a little about the actual epic of Gilgamesh, because I believe it's the oldest piece of epic world literature. Is that well, right to say? Well, at least that's, yes, as you say, literature written down. So they're, they're, I mean, many cultures have uh, similarly ancient stories, but the, the one that we have written down is the epic of Gilgamesh. And uh, it basically follows the story of the heroic young king Gilgamesh, who starts out as being a tyrant. And he uh, lives in Uruk, and he is basically oppressing all of his subjects. And this isn't really how kingship's meant to work. And so the story of Gilgamesh is basically how not to be a good Mesopotamian king, because he kind of does everything wrong. Um, but the people get fed up with him and they say, they go to the house of the gods and they say, can you fix this, please? And they say, sure. And so they create Enkidu, who is a hairy wild man sidekick. And the two of them go on these fabulous adventures to the Forest of Cedars, um, and then they get into a fight with the goddess Ishtar. They do battle with the bull of heaven, which is this massive bull that we think might be related to the constellation Taurus. And it was meant to be so big that with every snort of its breath, it created these giant sinkholes and people would just fall in. Um, so everything is kind of on a major epic scale in Gilgamesh. Spoiler, Enkidu dies because of some of their transgressions. Gilgamesh is absolutely devastated. It is quite beautiful. There's a whole passage about how, you know, he, he tries to stir Enkidu, but he doesn't get any response. Um, and it's, it's just very tragic. And so then he clothes himself in the skin of a lion and he goes roaming and he goes across. So he's looking for the secret of eternal life. He doesn't want to end up how Enkidu did. <laughs> and so he wants to live forever. And he travels across the borders of death, goes through the path of the sun, ends up in this sort of jeweled forest. And he finally meets this legendary flood survivor who tells him that actually he doesn't have the secret to eternal life, but he can have the secret to renewed youth, which Gilgamesh takes as a kind of runners-up prize, hangs on to it for about five minutes, and then loses it to a snake. And the snake eats this herb of, of um, eternal youth and it sheds its skin and becomes young again. And we think that's kind of an etiology for how snakes shed their skin. But then at the end of this, Gilgamesh goes back home and he looks at the walls of Uruk and he seems to understand that there's going to be some kind of immortality for him in the works of civilization. And at the same time, the writers of the epic seem to also be saying there's immortality in writing because they talk about how the tablets that the epic's written on are kind of hidden in the foundations of the city of the rock. Fabulous. So do we actually know who wrote this epic? Well, it looks like it's, well, it was one of those things that's been handed down in uh, multiple versions, um, but a very well-known version 
uh, was sort of around 1200 BCE by Sin Lake Unini, who was kind of a priest and an exorcist and magician. And he is known for pulling together the edition that we call the Standard Babylonian Version of the Gilgamesh Epic, which is a very important version. It's unusual because a lot of these um, Mesopotamian works of literature tend to be anonymously uh, written because, or if we do get an author, they'll be like a legendary sage or so. There's so many things in the story, aren't there? So the person who wrote it is actually interweaving so many different stories and morals and, and everything in there, isn't there? So it'd be quite nice to know actually who the person was who wrote it, I think, but we'll yeah. never know that. Maybe it'll be someone who's listening will one day figure it out. <laughs> That would be great. Or we could get in our time machine and go back. That's I'm really I'm really keen on time machines, I have to say. <laughs> okay, we have a question from Brennan now, who would like to know why do many ancient religions share the thread of overthrowing the old gods and replacing the pantheon with newer ones? Hmm. Uh well, I don't know, but it's a very good question. <laughs> um it does it is definitely a trend. I mean, Brennan is absolutely right there. And what I, I think a lot of scholars who sort of pursue this kind of uh, line of inquiry generally focus on uh, either the religious or the political motivations in uh, forming a new pantheon, because obviously in the ancient world, the religious is political and politics is religious. And so if you're having an old pantheon being overthrown by a bunch of new deities, uh, often they're looking at, you know, who is trying to capitalize on their political power and so much power came through the religious world. So I think that that's one explanation. On the other hand, I mean, if you just think about things like the transition from the Greek gods, the Roman ones, uh, where there's a lot of overlap, I feel like sometimes with cultures, uh, the culture changes so fast that in a way it's hard for the deities to change as fast and sort of keep up with the change. And so and a way around that is to sort of find new ways of imagining those gods. But at the same time, you've got to kind of, um, people are fascinated with the origins of things. Um, in ancient wisdom literature, we see a lot of focus on creation stories and on how things started, because um, that's, that's a sign of wisdom. To know how something started is to know it really, really well. And so you're going to need to have these origin stories. And also people are going to remember that there were deities for the ones that you have now. So I feel like these stories of deities being overthrown uh, for a new pantheon, they kind of serve kind of a lot of different purposes. Do you think there might be an element of just simply younger men with, or younger, yeah, you know, younger men with new ideas, something like that as well? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that uh, religion is always changing uh, to, um, to sort of meet new ideas and to meet new circumstances. Uh, it's a, it's quite a, it can be quite a fluid thing, religion um, and, and gods as well, how, how they are conceived of. So, yes, absolutely. Fantastic. Thank you. Let's just move on to Ishtar, which one of your books was about as well, because I find her fascinating because she's both the goddess of associated with love and war. Mm -hmm. So you'd think that, that that was sort of an opposite. So it's a very interesting combination. Yes. Uh, Ishtar is so fabulously interesting. So she is the first, uh, well, she's the first deity for which we have written evidence globally. And she's also the first um, love goddess. So I think most people are familiar with Aphrodite, but uh, Ishtar kind of got there first. And um, she seems to have lent some of her image to Aphrodite. So her, some of her image um, 
has kind of lasted. Unfortunately, a lot of it has been lost, um, probably due to um, the loss of cuneiform written traditions for thousands of years. But yes, so she is the goddess of uh, love, social connectedness, but also war. But a lot of those things about her that seem like they're really far away from each other, um, they kind of overlap in really cool ways. Um, and I was thinking about in my book that she, her relationship with the king, because uh, she has a very loving relationship with the Mesopotamian king. Um, in some cases, you know, they sort of marry one another. And so in this relationship, so she loves the king but she goes out and fights for the king because of that love. And so the love and the war, they're kind of uh, they're kind of related. So they're not as disparate as they might seem. One of her other roles is that she is, um, her brother, her twin brother is uh, the solar god and he, Shamash. And Shamash uh, being a solar god, he's all about justice because, uh, you know, solar deities, they tend to sort of see everything and, you know, even to the sort of darkness of men's heart, they can kind of, see it all. And so Shamash is, is like that, but Ishtar has a really important role in justice as well in that she helps to carry out justice and maintain cosmic order. And so part of that is is quite positive. So it's in her sort of loving relationship with her brother that she's involved in this sort of thing. But at the same time, it's that kind of war aspect where part of that order is uh, carrying out revenge. And she is all about revenge. And um, but that's part of maintaining order. If people transgress against her or against, you know, the king or so forth, then that's part of her, her power is to have the, the ability to carry out her vengeance. It's just, sorry, it's just so interesting. I find all this this so interesting. Yes, because she encompasses a, n a number of roles there, but as you say, they're all related. Mm -hmm. So I can't remember, I'm so sorry. Did the Mesopotamians have a large pantheon of gods or did they have a smaller number that took on a number of different aspects? Oh, they have, quite a, they have quite a large yeah. pantheon, uh, mm. but uh, their primary deities, uh, not so many. Uh, so there's lots of little gods all over the place, but then the primary gods, um, not so many, and uh, did shift around and shuffle about a little bit. Um, and you see that in Ishtar's uh, mythology as well, because the other thing you should know about Ishtar is she is super ambitious. I mean, there is really nothing that she sees as being beyond what she deserves. <laughs> And so <laughs> there's this amazing story about how um, she goes and visits um, the god of wisdom, Enki. Uh, this is Anana, who's Sumerian Ishtar. Um, and she visits him and she gets him drunk. And then she steals the cosmic powers from him and sails away on her boat with her faithful maidservant, Ninshaba. And Enki gets very upset about it and sends all these sea monsters after her to try and stop her, but it's too late. <laughs> so she ends up having all the may, and I think it's an ethological story of how those powers were transferred from one city to another. But we see this quite a lot with Ishtar, and she's very handy at, um, if she ever gets into any trouble, she's very handy at knowing whose door to knock on in order to get back out again. She sounds a fabulous woman. Has she been adopted by feminist <laughs> writers or thinkers these days? She has been a small amount, but I really feel that there is just a gold mine there with Ishtar for the feminist movement. Uh, she has this amazing myth where she is actually the victim of sexual violence. And so a gardener um, assaults her and she wakes up and realises what's happened. And then she realises what's happened and she hunts him down. 
And she sends all these amazing curses out onto the land and there's like a river of blood. And then I think there's a massive dust storm. And then I think the third curse is actually a traffic jam. Um, but after, after all of that, she finds him and then she punishes him horribly um, because, you know, re revenge is her thing. Fantastic. So um, who were the other main deities at this time, along with Ishtar? Uh, well, you often see Enlil as being considered to be sort of the chief of the pantheon. And then later you've got Marduk, uh, who we discussed a little bit earlier. Uh, you've got um, Ea, um, who's Sumerian Enki, is always around and doing something interesting, who's the god of wisdom. Uh, An or, um, who, or Anu, the sky deity, who is Ishtar's father in a lot of myths. And of course, you've got Shamash, uh, who's Sumerian Utu, the, the solar deity. Um, oh, and obviously, I can't forget Ereshkigal, who is Ishtar's sister, who is the queen of the underworld. Okay. Okay. I hesitate to tear myself away from, from these wonderful figures, but we should probably just go back to another reader question that we have, which is an interesting one, because I know that you've written about how modern comics keep myths alive, which I think is really fantastic. But we have a question from Neil. He asks, what do historians think of video game companies like Creative Assembly with their Total War series, Paradox with their unique historical grand strategy titles, and Ubisoft with its open world Assassin Creed games and its discovery tours, and how video games are investing back into the historical academic community? Wow. Look, I can't speak for all historians, but this historian thinks that these things are fabulous um, because I feel like video games give us such a potential to look at the historical world in a different way and to engage with it in a different way. Um, so you were, um, your reader was um, talking about the Total War series and there's, I think there's a Total War Rome that has been extremely popular in that gives it gives that sense for the person who's playing it of being really immersed in the history. Of course there's always going to be, be people who say look these things need to be more historical they're not historical enough uh, you know sometimes you'll see figures getting conflated or um, things not following exactly the timeline or being exactly historically accurate. However I will say that from teaching, uh, one of the things that I love about teaching is that when you meet people who are passionate about the historical world uh, and you talk to them about it, often that passion could be sparked by something as simple as having watched a movie that they loved as a child that, you know, showed them the, the Spartans um, at war or, you know, a game that they played that led them on to want to find out more. And so I feel like these things have such a huge potential to really feed our curiosity about what happened before. I agree. Tell, tell me more a little bit of the modern comics keeping ancient myths alive. Oh, well, um, I think that is super fascinating because some of these comic book writers, um, or at least all of the ones that I've come across, are so, uh, they're so informed about the things that they're writing about. Uh, when I started reading about comics about Ishtar and Gilgamesh, the comic book professionals that I was um, talking to about this, all they just really knew their myth and they really knew their history and they were able to bring it to life in this fabulously engaging way. And I really feel that, particularly for the field of Mesopotamia, because it is a tiny little field and uh, often can often be overlooked, I feel that if you can introduce people in an appealing way um, to this world, 
then I feel like that that just benefits everyone. And at the same time, I feel like it gives the comic professionals a lots of really fertile ground to write about. And you can see that with Gilgamesh because we're talking about him before about how, you know, he has this sort of wild man sidekick Enkidu and they have an epic romance. They are so in love with each other. But then in the comic books, in the Marvel comics, Gilgamesh's like bromance, like his best bro is Captain America, which is a really fabulous um, combination if you think about it, because Gilgamesh in the um, Marvel universe is, you know, miles away from home. He's not in Mesopotamia anymore. And Captain America is also disjointed from the time that he belongs in. You know, he's sort of been brought into the future. And so they're just really well suited. And it's a really clever way of talking about uh, their characters and their identity by kind of um, juxtaposing it with this history and myth. So have they, in fact, the modern comics actually taken most of the characters, you think, from historical figures? Well, um, I'm sure they've come up with some of their own. But at the same time, it's hard to think of pretty much any character from the ancient world that hasn't at some point fueled some sort of comic book engagement. Um, you know, living in Australia, um, there are some amazing, you know, Indigenous heroes uh, in the sort of, you know, superhero world uh, now, which is wonderful. So, yeah, they're, they're very they're prolific. Fantastic. And also, this is just on the same theme. Can video games present history in a better light, perhaps in the Hollywood epic, which is now presumed to be defunct in, in showing historical periods at all? <laughs> wow, that's a bit of a scathing indictment of, <laughs> of the film industry. Um, oh, look, I really think it depends, doesn't it? I mean, it really depends on the quality of the video game and it depends on the quality of the film. But I am intrigued. I haven't played enough historical video games to know whether being actually immersed as a player in the game would give you a totally different perspective than sort of more passively sitting and watching a film. So I do think there's huge potential there. And it's an interesting question. But, you know, I mean, Gilgamesh is going to be one of Marvel's new Avengers in the film that comes out, I think it's this year or next year. So, you know, maybe there's hope for the film industry. <laughs> I didn't know that actually. That so is he a new character that they're they're introducing? Yes, I think new he's, um, as in yes, new but old. <laughs> yes, um, yes, he's one of the Eternals, so he's going to be in the one. I think Angelina Jolie is in it. Um, I'm not sure who's playing Gilgamesh, but it's very exciting. Your most recent book is about turtles, and um, we mentioned them earlier. So, can you tell us a little bit more about them, perhaps? Okay, uh, so turtles, well, they're kind of amazing. There are a lot of different kinds of turtles in the world. Um, so there's 361 known species of turtle out there at the moment. Uh, when I wrote the book, uh, which wasn't that long ago, there were only 357 of which we knew. So it's really interesting to see how that field is just so dynamic and uh, constantly evolving. And I guess some of the interesting things that I found about turtles when I looked at their cultural history was, just to bring us back to our comic book uh, discussion, I think the world's most famous turtles are, of course, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I mean, it's indisputable. Um, but what's really interesting about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is they're actually the latest in a long line of warrior turtles that just goes all the way back, um, even to ancient Mesopotamia. There's this amazing story about, uh, in one of the world's oldest known stories, is uh, Ninurta and the turtle. And Ninurta is uh, this amazing, powerful warrior god uh, slash hero. The, the line in ancient Mesopotamia is blurry. 
<laughs> um, but he is sent on this amazing quest because the Tablet of Destiny has been stolen uh, by the Anzud bird, which is this giant bird that's sometimes also translated as the Thunderbird, which I actually really prefer to Anzud bird because it just sounds really exciting. But anyway, Anzud is probably more correct. So the Anzud bird runs off with the Tablet of Des Destiny, which is this tablet where all the fates are written down and whoever controls the Tablet of Destiny controls the fate of the whole world. And so the gods are like, we need to get the tablet back. Let's send out Ninurta, the hero. He'll rescue it. So Ninurta's like, fine, I can do that, no problem. And he goes out and fights with the Anzu bird, gets the tablet. And then the gods are like, well, just name your reward, Ninurta. And he's like, look, I don't think there's anything you can give me that I'm going to like as much as this new tablet that I've got. <laughs> and so he decides that he's just going to hang on to the tablet of destiny and control the whole world. So therefore, we've got Ea, the um, god of wisdom, who's like, well, we're going to have to foil this somehow. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to create an attack turtle. So he fashions this attack turtle out of clay and then he releases it to chase down Ninurta, which it does. And it sort of savagely scratches at him with its claws and it bites at his ankles and it digs a pit that he falls into. And then um, eventually they retrieve the Tablet of Destiny and the myth ends with the turtle continuing to attack Ninurta. Because apparently once you set an attack turtle in action, it's very hard to turn them back off again. So, yeah, so it's quite amazing. And you see warrior turtles all throughout history in different times. And, uh, yeah, so they're, they're tough little guys. I think it's the whole shells as shield thing. I was going to say, you know, when, when you're thinking of fashioning a creature to go and attack somebody, you'd think maybe of a lion or a tiger. You wouldn't necessarily think of a turtle. This is exactly right. And, yeah, in history as well, they often turn up in uh, their, you know, their shells have been actually used for people uh, as shields um, in sort of South America. And uh, they turn up at funny times on sort of battlefields and that kind of things as pets. Often we see them sort of in Gallipoli and that kind of thing as people with total pets. So, yeah, and, and they have inspired some of the earliest types of uh, uh, sort of military war craft that you'll see on the water. Um, there's a um, Gobuksun, which is the Korean warship that has like a turtle tail and it breeds fire. And then you've got the American turtle, which is the world's first known submarine, uh, which was created in the American Revolutionary War, I think around 1725, that may not be quite the right date. But David Bushnell was um, the person who made it. And it was to attack the British fleet that were in the New York, um, the New York Harbour. And this submarine... Like, if you're interested in, like, naval history at all, you should definitely look it up because if you can imagine, like, I'm not sure that I would enjoy being in an actual submarine now, but this submarine, it's made largely of wood and tar. You can fit one person in it, and to move it, you hand crank it. And so the soldier that they sent in this thing must have just been, like, the most courageous person ever. And the most committed. And so the idea was that the submarine, the American turtle, which was designed because it looked like a turtle, was sort of to sneak up to the fleet and then affix a mine, but it didn't quite work. But there's an amazing series of letters that you can actually access online between George uh, Washington and Thomas Jefferson talking about the American turtle and how they consider it to be such a work of genius. 
That's fascinating. I wonder how on earth he was supposed to attach the bomb to the ships. You know, did he have to then swim out of his turtle to sort of <laughs> to get to them, or, or how he was how they envisaged he was going to do that? I'm sorry to keep asking. So, what made you focus on turtles though in the beginning? Was it because of this historical link that got you thinking about them? Where did turtles come from? Well, I think that like they're a very interesting animal and they're quite mysterious. The Egyptians actually called them the mysterious ones because they, you know, they live so much of their lives submerged. Um, also, I should say that the Egyptians are the one culture that I found that don't seem to really like turtles very much. <laughs> and uh, I think it's because, you know, they submerged in the darkness, whereas they kind of worship the sort of solar deity. Um, and so they're considered to be sort of in in um, opposition to one another. That being said, the turtle experts that I talked to were like, yes, well, that makes sense because some of the turtles that live in Egypt are quite vicious. <laughs> so it's another one of those stories where um, the myth reflects reality. Um, but yeah, so they're fascinating in their own right. But at the same time, I always like to have a personal connection to whatever I'm writing about, um, just because I just think that makes it more meaningful. And uh, for turtles, I think with turtles, I was really hoping that um, because, you know, I, I've been sort of trying to move things along with my career and being quite busy. And I thought, well, maybe I can learn from the turtle. Maybe I can learn to just take my time. You know, you know nobody rushes a turtle, right? You can try, but it's not going to work. <laughs> and I thought, this is going to help me. I'm going to I'm going to slow down to the turtle pace and write the turtle book. And, um, and and just learn something from a creature that is, you know, over 100 million years old. Um, I'm not sure it really worked, but, uh, you know, there's still time to learn from the turtle. <laughs> That's wonderful. So, of course, I have to ask, what's your next book? Is it going to be a Mesopotamian goddess or god, or is it going to be another animal? Well, thank you for asking. Uh, neither. So what it's going to be is going to be um, I'm writing for a series um on the natural world and my book in the series is going to be a cultural history of wind okay mm. okay yes and so i thought this sounded fascinating uh, because uh wind is really related to religion in a lot of ways um obviously because it's invisible but powerful um it's often related to magic um i thought oh there's so many interesting um so many interesting things to explore here. But now that I've started writing it, the more I realise that wind is everywhere and has been since like before the planet was formed because there's, you know, solar wind and there's, there's cosmic wind. <laughs> and, um, it's you know, it's everywhere. It's all the time. And, um, you know, every culture. So it's, kind of, it's a large project. I'm not sure the turtles would improve <laughs> of the size of the project that I've picked up with wind, but it's not dull. The first thing that I've found that I'm really interested in, and I don't know why it's like why it's like this, is wind in pretty much every culture I've looked at, every culture seems nobody seems to just look at wind as a blanket force. And pretty much every culture seems to see your cardinal winds, you know, your east, west, north, south. Seems to be a thing out of just so many different cultures. And you wonder why, why, why is that such a part of our, you know, human con concept of nature that 
winds come from four directions. Do you think it might be because, and this is off the top of my head and I have no idea about these sort of things, but winds coming from different directions bring different things, you know, like often from the south, would I be right in saying that they were warm and then if they're coming from a certain direction, they might be coming from the sea. Do you know what I mean? So I wonder if, if it's because the different winds have different personalities shall yes. we say, or different characteristics. Yes, I think that's exactly right. And that's what you do see in the myths, totally, is that the myths from the myths of different winds reflect different characters for those winds. And often there's some overlap between different cultures of how they'll characterise a particular particular wind. For example, the east wind, uh, usually, um, it, like for example in the Hebrew Bible, the east wind uh, and in Mesopotamia, they're both considered to be quite, an, quite a um, difficult wind to get along with. The south wind in Mesopotamia, it's a, that's an evil wind. Um, but yeah, there's a whole myth about one of the winds uh, in Mesopotamia getting its wing broken uh, because it gets cursed. And then that's a um, like a, another sort of a divine slight that needs to be rectified. So yeah, it's just really interesting how people conceptualise these natural forces uh, in, in such such intriguing ways. Fantastic. So when will you complete that? Um, in theory, at the end of the year. <laughs> Louise, it's been a real pleasure talking to you today. Thank you very much for your time. Oh, thank you so much, Fiona. I very much enjoyed it.